Chapter Three, Part One of The Betrothed. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Betrothed by Alessandro Monsoni. Chapter Three, Part One. While Renzo was relating with pain what Agnese with pain listened to, Lucia entered the room. They both turned towards her. She indeed knew more about it than they, and of her they awaited an explanation which could not but be distressing. In the midst of their sorrow they both, according to the different nature of the love they bore Lucia, discovered in their own manner a degree of anger that she had concealed anything from them, especially of such a nature. Agnese, although anxious to hear her daughter speak, could not refrain from a slight reproof to say nothing to your mother in such a case. Now I will tell you all, answered Lucia, as she dried her eyes with her apron. Speak, 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 at once cried both mother and lover. Most holy virgin, exclaimed Lucia, who could have believed it would have come to this? Then with a voice tremulous with weeping, she related how, as she was returning from her spinning, and had loitered behind her companions, Don Rodrigo, in company with another gentleman, had passed by her, that he had tried to engage her in foolish talk, as she called it. But she, without giving him an answer, had quickened her pace and joined her companions. Then she had heard the other gentleman laugh loudly, and Don Rodrigo say, I'll lay you a wager. The next day they were again on the road, but Lucia was in the midst of her companions with her eyes on the ground. When the other gentleman laughed, and Don Rodrigo said, We shall see, we shall see. This day, continued Lucia, thank God, was the last of the spinning. I related immediately. Who was it you told it to? demanded Agnese, waiting, not without a little displeasure, for the name of the confidant who had been preferred. To Father Cristoforo, in confession, mamma, replied Lucia, with a sweet tone of apology. I related the whole to him the last time we went to church together at the convent, and if you noticed, that morning I kept putting my hand to one thing and another to pass the time till other people were on the road, that we might go in company with them, because after that meeting the roads made me so frightened. At the reverend name of Father Cristoforo, the wrath of Agnese subsided. You did well, said she but why not tell all to your mother also? Lucia had had two good reasons, one not to distress and frighten the good woman about an event against which she could have found no remedy, the other not to run the risk of a story travelling from mouth to mouth which she wished to be kept with jealous silence, the more so because Lucia hoped that her marriage would have cut short at the beginning this abominated persecution. Of these two reasons, she alleged only the first. And to you, said she, turning to Renzo, with that tone which reminds a friend that he is unreasonable, and to you could I speak about this? Surely you know too much of it now. And what did the father say to you? asked Agnese. He told me that I must try to hasten the wedding as much as I could, and in the meantime to keep myself within doors, that I should pray to the Lord and he hoped that this man, if he did not see me, would not care any more about me. And it was then that I forced myself, 
continued she, turning again towards Renzo, without, however, raising her eyes, and blushing to the temples, it was then that I put on a too bold face, and begged you to get it done soon, and have it concluded before the fixed time. Who knows what you must have thought of me? But I did it for good, and it was advised me, and I thought for certain, and this morning I was so far from thinking— here Lucia's words were cut short by a violent burst of tears. "'Ah, rascal! Wretch! Murderer!' exclaimed Renzo, striding backwards and forwards across the room, and grasping from time to time the hilt of his dagger. "'Oh, heavens! What a fury!' exclaimed Agnese. The young man suddenly drew himself up before Lucia, who was weeping, looked at her with an anxious and embittered tenderness, and said, this is the last deed this assassin shall do. Ah, no, Renzo, for heaven's sake, cried Lucia. No, no, for heaven's sake, God is on the side of the poor, and how can we expect him to help us if we do wrong? No, no, for heaven's sake, echoed Agnese. Renzo, said Lucia, with an air of hope and more tranquil resolution, you have a trade, and I know how to work. Let us go so far off that this man will hear no more about us. Ah, Lucia, and what then? We are not yet man and wife. Will the curate give us a certificate of no impediment, such a man as he is? If we were married, oh, then! Lucia began to weep again, and all three remained silent, giving signs of depression which contrasted strangely with the festive gaiety of their dress. Listen, my children, attend to me said Agnese, after some moments. I came into the world long before you, and I know something about the world. You need not frighten yourselves too much. Things are not so bad as people make out. To us poor people, the skein seems more entangled because we cannot get hold of the right end. But sometimes a piece of good advice, a little talk with a man who has got learning, I know well enough what I would say. Do as I tell you, Renzo, Go to Lecco, seek for Dr. Azeka Garbugli. Tell him all about it. But mind you, don't call him so, for heaven's sake. It's a nickname. You must tell the senor doctor. What in the world do they call him? Oh, dear, I don't know his right name. Everybody calls him so. Never mind, seek for this doctor. He is tall, thin, bald, with a red nose and a raspberry-colored mole on his cheek. I know him by sight said Renzo. Well, continued Agnese, he is a man. I have seen more than one person, bothered like a chicken in a bundle of hemp, and who did not know where to put his head, and after being an hour nose to nose with the Dr. Azeka Garbugli, take good care you don't call him so, I have seen him, I say, make a joke of it. Take these four capons, poor creatures, whose necks I ought to have wrung for tonight's supper, and carry them to him because we must never go empty-handed to these gentlemen. Relate to him all that has happened, and you'll see he will tell you, in a twinkling, things which would not come into our heads if we were to think about them for a year. Renzo willingly embraced this counsel. Lucia approved it, and Agnese, proud of having given it, took the poor creatures one by one from the hen-coop, united their eight legs, as one makes up a bunch of flowers, tied them up with a piece of string, and consigned them to the hands of Renzo, who,
who, after giving and receiving words of encouragement and hope, went out by a little gate from the garden, that he might escape the observation of the boys, who would have run after him, crying, The bridegroom! The bridegroom! Thus having crossed the fields, or as they call them there, the places, he continued his route along narrow lanes, giving utterance to his bitter thoughts, as he reflected on his misfortune, and considering what he must say to the Dr. Azeka Garbugli. I leave it to the reader to think how the journey was enjoyed by those poor creatures, so bound together, and held by the feet with their heads downwards, in the hand of a man who, agitated by so many passions, accompanied with appropriate gesture the thoughts which rushed tumultuously through his mind, and in moments of anger or determination, suddenly extending his arm, inflicted terrible shocks upon them, and caused those four pendant heads to bob violently, if we may be allowed the expression. They, meanwhile, vigorously applying themselves to peck each other, as too often happens among friends in adversity. Arriving at the village, he inquired for the doctor's house, and when it was pointed out to him, quickly made his way thither. On approaching it, however, he began to feel that bashfulness so usual with the poor and ignorant in the presence of a gentleman or man of learning, and forgot all the fine speeches he had prepared. But a glance at the chickens he carried in his hand restored his courage. He went into the kitchen, and asked the maidservant if he could see the senior doctor. The woman looked at the birds, and, as if accustomed to such presents, was about to take them in her hand, but Renzo held them back, because he wanted the doctor to see he had brought something with him. Just at this moment the wished-for personage made his appearance, as the servant was saying, Give them here, and go forward to the study. Renzo made a low bow to the doctor, who graciously bid him, Come in, my son, and took him into his study. It was a large room, decorated on three sides with portraits of the twelve Caesars. The remaining wall was hidden by a large bookcase, filled with old and dusty books. In the middle of the room stood a table covered with extracts, petitions, libels, and proclamations. Three or four chairs were scattered around, and on one side was a large armchair with a high square back, terminating at the corners in two horn-shaped ornaments of wood, and covered with leather fastened down with large nails. Some of these had fallen out, so that the leather curled up here and there at pleasure, leaving the corners unencumbered. The doctor was in his dressing-gown, that is to say, he had on a faded robe, which had served him for many years to harangue in on days of state, when he went to Milan on any important cause. Having shut the door, he reanimated the young man's confidence with these words. Tell me your case, my son. I wish to speak a word to you in confidence. I'm ready. Speak, replied the doctor, seating himself on his armchair. Renzo stood before the table, and twirling his hat with his right hand round the other, continued, I want to know from you who has studied... Tell the case as it is, interrupted the doctor. Excuse me, senor doctor, we poor people don't know how to speak properly. I want, then, to know... Blessed set you are! You are all alike. Instead of relating your case, you ask questions, because you've already made up your minds. I beg your pardon, senor doctor. I want to know if there's any punishment for threatening a curate and forbidding him to celebrate a marriage. I understand, muttered the doctor, 
who in truth had not understood. I understand. He then put on a serious face, but it was a seriousness mingled with an air of compassion and importance, and, pressing his lips, he uttered an inarticulate sound, betokening a sentiment, afterwards more clearly expressed in his first words. A serious case, my son, there are laws to the point. You have done well to come to me. It is a clear case, recognized in a hundred proclamations, and, stay, in an edict of the last year, by the present Senor Governor, I'll let you see it and handle it directly. So saying, he rose from his seat, and hunted through the chaos of papers, shoveling the lower ones uppermost with his hands, as if he were throwing corn into a measure. Where can it be? Come nearer, come nearer. One is obliged to have so many things in hand. But it must surely be here, for it is a proclamation of importance. Ah, here it is, here it is. He took it, unfolded it, looked at the date, and with a still more serious face continued. The 15th of October, 1627. Certainly it is last year's. A fresh proclamation. It is these that cause such fear. Can you read, my son? A little, Senor Doctor. Very well, follow me with your eye, and you shall see. And holding the edict displayed in the air, he began to read, rapidly muttering some passages, and pausing distinctly with marked emphasis upon others, as the case required. Although in the proclamation published by order of the Senor Duke of Feria, the 14th December, 1620, and confirmed by the most illustrious and most excellent Senor, the Senor Gonzalo Fernandez de Cordova, etc., there was provision made by extraordinary and rigorous measures against oppressions, commotions, and tyrannical acts that some persons dared to commit against the devoted subjects of His Majesty. Nevertheless, the frequency of crimes and violences, etc., has increased to such a degree that His Excellency is under the necessity, etc. Wherefore, with the concurrence of the Senate and a Council, etc., he has resolved to publish the present edict. And, to begin with tyrannical acts, experience showing that many, as well in cities as in the country, do you hear, excite commotions in this state by violence, and oppress the weak in various ways, as, for example, by compelling them to make hard bargains in purchases, rents, etc., where am I? Ah, here, look, to perform or not to perform marriages, eh? That is my case, said Renzo. Listen, listen, there is plenty more, and then we shall see the penalty. To give evidence or not to give evidence, compelling one to leave his home, etc., another to pay a debt. All this has nothing to do with us. Ah, we have it here. This priest not to perform that to which he is obliged by his office, or to do things which do not belong to him, eh? It seems as if they had made the edict exactly for me. Eh, is it not so? Listen, listen, and similar oppressions, whether perpetrated by feudatories, the nobility, middle ranks, lower orders, or plebeians. No one escapes, they are all here. It is like the valley of Jehoshaphat. Listen now to the penalty. All these, and other such like criminal acts, although they are prohibited, nevertheless, it being necessary to use greater rigor, his excellency, not relenting in this proclamation, etc., enjoins and commands that against all offenders under any of the above-mentioned heads, or the like, all the ordinary magistrates of the state 
shall proceed by pecuniary and corporal punishment, by banishment or the galleys, and even by death, a mere bagatelle, at the will of his excellency or of the senate, according to the character of the cases, persons, and circumstances, and this irremissibly, and with all rigor, etc. There's plenty of it here, eh? And see, here's the signature, Gonzalo Fernandez de Cordova, and lower down, Platinus, and here again, Bidit Ferrer, there's nothing wanting. While the doctor was reading, Renzo slowly followed him with his eye, trying to draw out the simple meaning, and to behold for himself those blessed words which he believed were to render him assistance. The doctor, seeing his client more attentive than alarmed, was greatly surprised. He must be matriculated, said he to himself. Ah, ah, added he aloud, you have been obliged to shave off the lock. You have been prudent. However, you need not have done so when putting yourself under my hands. The case is serious, but you don't know what I have courage to do in a time of need. To understand this mistake of the doctors, it must be known that at that time, bravos by profession and villains of any kind used to wear a long lock of hair, which they drew over the face like a visor on meeting any one, when the occasion was one which rendered disguise necessary, and the undertaking such as required both force and circumspection. The proclamation had not been silent with regard to this matter. His Excellency, the Marquis of Lahainahosa, commands that whosoever shall wear his hair of such a length as to cover his forehead as far as the eyebrows only, or shall wear tresses either before or behind the ears, shall incur the penalty of three hundred crowns, or in case of inability, three years in the galleys for the first offence, and for the second, besides the above, a severer penalty still, at the will of his excellency. However, in case of baldness or other reasonable cause, as a mark or wound, he gives permission to such, for the greater decorum or health, to wear their hair so long as may be necessary to cover such failings, and no more, wanting them well to beware of exceeding the limits of duty and pure necessity, that they may not incur the penalty imposed upon other dissemblers. And he also commands all barbers, under penalty of a hundred crowns, or three stripes, to be given them in public, and even greater corporal punishment, at the will of his excellency, as above, that they leave not on those whom they shave any kind of the said tresses, locks, curls, or hair, longer than usual, either on the forehead, temples, or behind the ears, but that they shall be all of equal length as above, except in case of baldness or other defects as already described. The lock, then, might almost be considered a part of the armor, and a distinctive mark of bravos and vagabonds, so that these characters very commonly bore the name of Siufi. This term is still used, with a mitigated signification, in the dialect of the country, and perhaps there is not one of our Milanese readers who does not remember hearing it said of him, in his childhood, either by his relatives, his tutor, or some family friend, he is a siufo, he is a siufetto. On the word of a poor youth, replied Renzo, I never wore a lock in my life. I can do nothing, replied the doctor, shaking his head, with a smile between malice and impatience. If you don't trust me, I can do nothing. He who tells lies to the lawyer, do you see, my son, 
is a fool who will tell the truth to the judge. People must relate matters clearly to the advocate. It is our business to make them intricate. If you wish me to help you, you must tell me all from A to Z, with your heart in your hand, as if to your confessor. You must name the person who has employed you. He will most likely be a person of consequence, and in that case, I will go to him to perform an act of duty. I shan't, however, tell him, do you see, that you told me he had sent you, trust me. I will tell him I come to implore his protection for a poor slandered youth, and will take all necessary measures with him to finish the affair commendably. You understand that in securing himself, he will also secure you. Even if the scrape be all your own, I won't go back. I have extricated others from worse predicaments. And if you have not offended a person of quality, you understand, I will engage to get you out of the difficulty, with a little expense you understand. You must tell me who is the offended party, as they say, and according to the condition, rank, and temper of the person, we shall see whether it will be better to bring him to reason by offers of protection, or in some way to criminate him and put a flea in his ear. Because, you see, I know very well how to manage these edicts. No one must be guilty, and no one must be innocent. As to the curate, if he has any discretion, he will keep in the background. If he is a simpleton, we will dispose of him, too. One can escape from any intrigue. But it requires one to act like a man, and your case is serious. Serious, I say, serious. The edict speaks clearly, and if the matter were to be decided between justice and you, to say the truth, it would go hard with you. I speak to you as a friend. One must pay for pranks. If you wish to get off clear, money and frankness. Trust yourself to one who wishes you well. Obey and do all that is suggested to you. End of chapter 3, part 1